Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. Today we are joined by Dr. Sonia Ospina, who was recently honored at the 25th ILA Global Conference with the ILA Lifetime Achievement Award. The award honors individuals who have made a significant lifetime contribution to the field of leadership through their published works and influential support of leadership knowledge and practice. Each honoree is presented with the award and has their work celebrated at our annual global conference. After the conference, recipients are added to the ILA Virtual Hall of Fame, as well as some of them join us on the show to talk about their experience. Yes, and we're really lucky today to have Dr. Ospina, uh, who very recently uh, retired as professor of public management and policy at New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. She's also the former faculty director of the Research Center for Leadership and Action, the RCLA. Um, her present academic interests, or very recent academic interests, so we'll talk to her a little bit about her retirement, um, include collective leadership and democratic governance, uh, both in the U.S. and in Latin America. She also became a leadership scholar by directing a multi-year national research project that invited 92 U.S. social change organizations to co-produce new knowledge about leadership and social transformation the resulting practitioner leadership stories, the pedagogical cases, peer-reviewed journal articles, and other publications theorize collective leadership. They identify social change leadership practices and explored the relationship between race and leadership, among other contributions. Uh, Sonia grew up in urban Bogota and worked in the education field until she returned to the U.S., where she was born to Colombian parents. And she has lived with her family for 34 years in another great urban space, New York City. Sonia's bicultural experience and strong ties to both countries are embodied in her transnational and multicultural approach to life. Uh, she has a Ph.D. in sociology, MS in Policy Management from SUNY at Stonebrook and a BA in Education and Social Sciences from Universidad Javeriana in Colombia. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Thank you very much, Dan and Lauren, for inviting me to the show and for that eloquent presentation, introduction, you know, we, I should say. We read all that stuff, Sonia, but we really could have replaced it with, you are amazing, we love your work, we're excited <laughs> 
here in space before the show for our audience before the show we were talking about who's organizing the Sonia fan club and could we get an invite if possible because we have both used your work in teaching and in writing and just getting a better understanding of leadership so um, can you share, you know, with our audience a little bit about how you got involved in ILA and what that's meant to you personally? Yes, of course. Um, I, I have to say that I entered the leadership field uh, midway my career. And uh, at that point, uh, the ILA was also starting. So we kind of like started at the same time. And, and I, I was... Uh, um, very excited to go to a conference that um, had a lot of stakeholders that were very diverse. Um, so that we had practitioners, we had researchers, we had consultants, we had uh, uh, people teaching leadership and people, uh, uh, students of, of leadership and at all levels, um, people doing leadership development. And it was very exciting to know of an organization that was so um, eclectic in terms of their um, the conversations that could happen in that context. You know how conf conferences in an academic context is mostly academics talking with academics. And it was very exciting to do to, to see this organization. And one of the things that was really interesting for me was how much emphasis they gave to practice and to practitioners, because that was one of the things that I was very surprised when I came to the United States that academics were very, very separated from practitioners. And as I started doing my PhD, I said, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to be a, a separate academic. I will do theory, but I will not do that because I grew up in a country where you go to the university to serve your country, to figure out what, how you can help do things better in the country. So anyway, back to ILA with that mind, it, it was exciting to be in, the, in that first uh, period of, of its life. I had my doubts that they that one of the aspirations they had was to become international. I was not sure they would be able to do it, and they've done a magnificent job at it. You know, in the last conference I went to, there were people from all over the world, and it was like such a pleasure to see, um, you know, like this uh, group of people who could talk to each other uh, in the same place. So that that I congratulate ILA for that. I think it's a great achievement. Not all organizations that have that aspiration are able to do it and, and with such success. Um, so um, I participated uh, with uh, as panel organizer, as uh, uh, organized workshops around the leadership uh, research that you discussed, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, wrote papers and presented papers. So I had a variety of roles, um, in, including if, if maybe they needed some help with chairing a session or something like that, I, I, I would do that. I would echo that. And one of the, the great joys I've had as a faculty member for the last 11 years, and then having, we recently uh, started a PhD program in my department four years ago. And one of the things that we were very excited that was going to be part of the PhD program was that students have what we call global immersion requirements. So they, they either mm -hmm. do a study abroad program or which is heavily immersed in, in leadership. It's, it's in uh, the Montague region of South Africa, or they participate in an ILA conference. And I actually modeled it after uh, Cheryl Getz's course at the University of San Diego. I went to a session in the 2012, was it was 2014 um, ILA Global Conference. And I went to the session that she was facilitating with a bunch of students that 
they were using the conference experience as pedagogy. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I want to do that. And so started basically, I said, Cheryl, can I borrow your syllabus, of course? And so modeled that and started taking students back in 2016. And then we took 20 students to the conference last year in DC. And, you know, I, I love talking about the ILA when I'm getting them ready. We do like two virtual meetings and then we go to the conference and then we do one reflective uh, Zoom meeting and, you know, just talking about, oh, you're going to interact with people from 50, 60 countries. And, you know, the sessions are not just academic, just like you said, it's practitioners, it's workshops, it's panels, it's it's discussion groups. It's, you know, I, I really appreciate all, all the things that, you know, you, you kind of shared and, to, you know, to hear that from someone who's been involved in the association for, you know, since it's, um, since its beginnings, it's, um, and you keep coming back, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and feel not just, and it's not like an obligation. It's like, oh, I would be, I would be glad to help share a panel or help put this together. And it is really rewarding, um, I feel. And and being able to share that with students is is just one of the joys of of you know, I think being an an academic in this space. I I'd be curious sharing a little bit of that. What are some of your most meaningful memories from an ILA conference? Maybe someone you met or a session or a speaker you participated in? Uh, well, I have to say, I'm going to be um, a little um, self-oriented in saying that uh, sure. I went to a regional a regional meeting in Latin America. And it was, it was such a pleasure because um, usually Latin America is not, you know, like people go to Africa, you know, the regionals in Africa, in Europe, and this one was in Peru, and um, it was just delightful. Um, it was great to be able to like take the pulse in in the in the region, which is I I do work do some leadership uh, work in uh, in Colombia mostly, but and, and I get invitations from other parts. I've got invitations from Brazil, from Chile, from Argentina, uh, from Ecuador, but. Those are very specific kinds of invitations for very particular things. But to get a sense of the different stakeholders and what they were doing and, and how they were talking about this was, was delightful. And so this idea of having regional conferences is fantastic. And one of the great highlights of that conference is that I met Brad Jackson um, at, uh, and we we connected very well. And since then, we've become really good friends. And um, he uh, first of all, his scholarship is fantastic. And the, the work that he does on, on a place is really relevant, but also he's a delightful human being and and someone with whom, you know, like there were there were lots of commonalities. And so we were like, one of the things about the the conference is that you you find kindred spirits <laughs> you know? and then you can develop outside relationships after after you've done it. So that's that's a memorable conference for me for those reasons. And just being in the region. You hit the nail on the head, Sonia, the the whole finding kindred spirits. Like, that's why we're here. Like, our theme for our podcast is continuing conversations because Dana and I kept running into each other at these conferences and sitting next to each other. And then we found out we were both Florida State grads. And it was, you know, did we just become best friends? And so it, it's literally that experience that we've tried to, I don't want to say recreate, but try to extend so that in between you get that, that joyous feeling. Um, and you're right. Yeah. It, it's not everywhere, right? I, like I think about when y'all were talking about the Latin America 
And then you're talking about your your students and taking them. Like it feels like a, an adult study abroad for me. So I didn't do a study abroad program in undergrad. And and when I wanted to go in grad school, they didn't have enough people for the program. And so I I didn't get that experience. But I went this year, and I, I'm getting my PhD at Antioch. They organized a mini residency, so I got to meet some of the students entering the program. I got to see people who just graduated present on their research. And so it feels like a like a an adult. I don't say adult, but a non-school study abroad experience for that reason. You're you're getting immersed in it, but yeah. you're getting to learn leadership in that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and I've met really uh, interesting people over the years. Um, people that I didn't know of and other people who I did about didn't know about, and it was like great to see them in person. Um, and and some and some more uh, junior faculty with I kept bumping into them and we finally started talking and and then afterwards when there was a somebody asked me to do something and I couldn't do it I could refer them to that person because I I had seen them in the ILA and I had heard their work and I knew they were serious and now we're involved in a project together and that that wouldn't have happened without ILA. <laughs> Which yeah. is, is the intention of these spaces, right? You're you're connecting, you're sharing ideas, but the hope is that you walk away with something that you can take back. And whether it's it's teaching activities or a new friend, like I had a student once when I first started running the leadership program, she was like, Well, I'm just joining because I want to make friends. And I'm like, What? what? No, <laughs> we do skill development. We do the and I'm all and you know, and but she was right in the sense that um she really was focused on the relational aspect of the lead. And and I always tell her, like she taught me that lesson. She did a great job teaching. Um, but but to your point, it, it's still like even as we've graduated out of our programs, like we're still making those friends and really um I do want to ask with this conference in Vancouver, you were like in the spotlight. So it wasn't just you could show up and kind of hide and blend in. Like you you were honored for your contributions. Like how did that feel for you? How how did how did it feel this time? Was it different? Um what was special about this year? Well, it it was quite different. Um because on the one hand, it was very interesting and I have to say very exciting and rewarding to get stopped in a corridor and be told or in, or in one of the events, right, and be told about um, the, about how my work had uh, impacted them. So like there was a student who, you know, a faculty member uh, uh, who, who said to me, you know, I'm, I'm Latino and I'm doing my, I was doing my studies in English and I was kind of like a little lost about what, what I wanted to do. And then I found your stuff in Spanish and I started reading it and I read everything in Spanish that you did, which is not a lot, but it's it's some right somewhat. Uh, um, and then he said, and you, that completely changed my trajectory. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, isn't that amazing? Isn't that great that I can hear someone telling me that? I would never know. And I think part of what happened in this meeting is, well, first of all, when I got the news that I had this lifetime achievement, I'm like, what, me, really? That was, it was surprising. I knew I had done a lot of work and I had pushed for certain ways of thinking, but to have it recognized like that, especially at the end of my quote academic career was very, very rewarding. And then getting like testimonials from individuals was fantastic. Um, I did the, the conversations with Sonia Ospina uh, event 
And I was, you know, like you have a moment when you say, what if only two people show up? Well, the room was full and uh, there were some people standing and uh, and it was really an, an amazing conversation. I did it with Barbara Crosby and, and, and Brad Jackson. And uh, and I could see people, mm, you know, like nodding their heads and and being excited about the things that we were talking Um so I could, there was a lot of affirmation also in gestures from with the body, body gestures. Um, and then also, I, you know, like there was a, an invitation to, I'm blocking now her name. I'm sorry that I don't have her name because I would love to uh, honor her. But a, a, a teacher from San Diego uh, University from the leadership uh, program there who brings, like you do, uh, brings some of uh, her PhD students and master's students to the conference. And she wanted me to meet with them informally and have a conversation with them. And I did. And it was so beautiful, you know, what they were saying. And, and at first they were very relaxed. And then suddenly I started seeing some of them taking notes. And then at some point everyone's taking notes. And I'm like, what? don't take notes. But but anyway, that, so they wanted to remember certain things, right? So they, so it was like they were so into it um, that, that it, it was just very... I, I I keep using the word rewarding, but to know that the work that you've done with a lot of passion, with a lot of thinking, um, with with um, spending resources and um, and sometimes swimming against the current, right, has meaning for a lot of people. To me, that's what best could you expect from your from your work. So I was I was very moved and very touched and very appreciative um, of the of the connections and the people coming to me and telling me that and of course of the bigger of the bigger event. Um, also, I I went to the public leadership group who actually also had a like a a, a plague for me and uh, said great things about me and it was very exciting. I. You know, we missed. I I missed the meetings when when COVID. I I know that some of them happened uh, by distance, but I was too preoccupied with lots of other stuff, and I I didn't. So I, there was like three years that were like blank for me, and so there were a lot of new people there that I that I uh, didn't know, and it was great to be honored by the public leadership group uh, itself because that's that's the context in, in which I had done my research, and you know when we say public service. Normally, people think about public administration, but that's just one third. You know, public services and any leader, any person who wants to do work that's for the collective, is in public service. And and so, you know, like the idea of uh, of who should participate in change has really broadened. And uh, the work that I did with social change leaders in community-based organizations is incredibly valid and important. And one of the things that was fantastic about being able to do that work and feature it was precisely to show a voice that sometimes hasn't been considered as public leadership. And that is really very, very important public leadership at the ground level. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, knowing the 
work that you've done, you know, specifically around, you know, participatory research and not being afraid to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I would say you're, you're willing to take risks in, as a researcher, right? And as a, as a scholar and to, to, you know, get your hands dirty and go out in the field and be with the people that you're researching. And oftentimes you can really connect with folks and, and make invaluable contributions to uh, what we know about different, you know, different cultures and different parts of the world, because you're in, you're in it with them, and you're, you're, you know, you're. It's a collective, it's collaborative, which is a theme that I've seen throughout your research, and you've been considerably prolific in in that area. And not only as a collaborator, but I think as an institution builder too. I think people, as you mentioned, people, you know, you had folks standing in the in the wings, right, when to in that conversation, which um, which was you know deserved, and you know, you've also been an, an institution builder, I think, in that way. What what do you hope the impact of the networks and the organizations that you've helped to create and lead will be as you think as you think about your legacy? Uh, well, on, on the one hand, I'm I'm hoping that with the, all those spaces that I helped to construct, because I didn't construct them myself, but I co-constructed them with other people who were equally passionate about these. But so like for example, a collective leadership network, CoLeadNet, which functioned for five years, um, where we met every uh, every year for five years, bring putting in resources of our own, uh, and only we we were stopped by COVID. Now we're thinking about can we revive the the network? And that that was you know like it was like a co. It was an effort of all of all the ones who were wanted to be part of that. Um, uh, or the uh, center, the research center for leadership in action is another uh, institution building place, but. I I would say that what I would hope is that those that those spaces or others or when those spaces are gone but people keep getting the fruits of those spaces that they would make sure that the idea of collective leadership is a, is a legitimate idea um, and that they continue to uh, develop that line of work and um, you know like the I think that in every field, there's a pendulum that swings between the individual and the collective as as, as paying attention to one or the other. And um, I just would hope that um, paying attention to the collective dimensions of leadership doesn't just become like a fad, that it really sticks to the basic core theories of, um, of leadership. Um, um, so that's an aspiration that I have. I, I also think that by having uh, participated in the creation of some of those institutions and spaces, we I think we made um, the space where leadership study is studied and practiced more more plural. Like so, we brought some pluralism to the field and and to the you know, to the domain by showing, for example, the importance of different ways of knowing. And the relevance of not just focusing on one single rational scientific way of knowing, but to incorporate experience and, and visions of people who traditionally have been in the margins, and therefore the conversation becomes richer, and therefore there's more pluralism in the sector, right? Um, so I hope that continues and that gets strengthened uh, over time. I also hope that that the conversation between practitioners and academics continues to develop and is strengthened and that um, 
having had the spaces that really honor that and having written a lot of our publications with some of the practitioners because we were not studying them, but we were studying leadership with them, that, that what the products that came out of that are sufficiently valued to see, you know, to motivate other people to continue to draw from the practitioners in a way that is not just about extracting the knowledge, but about co-producing knowledge uh, together. And, you know, like the participatory approach, I think is so consistent with the, uh, the notion of collective leadership. It's like, for me, this that's the line of thinking that has been there in all my, in all my work, that you cannot think about collective leadership without thinking about participatory spaces. And you cannot think about participatory spaces without thinking about collective leadership being produced in them, right? And so there, there's a very intimate connection between those two elements um, or those two constructs that each of them is separate, but they're so interdependent and so connected that that's a very nice area to explore, actually. It'd be great to explore it more. And it, and it feels like if you had like, you know, like 20 years of, of career, like you, you, it sounds like there's still even more you want to get into. Yes, I do have to say, I, I think I'm retiring at a moment when I have lots of new ideas and lots of new questions. And, and part of the idea of retiring is to be able to, to follow invitations and ideas that don't have without any restriction. Right. Oh, I can't do that because I'm teaching two courses this semester and therefore I can't just, you know, like devote my attention to something else in addition to preparing my classes very well. Thank you very much. Um, and, and retiring, I will be able to choose things that I can go deeper without having some of those constraints. So I think the retirement is not the right word necessarily, although I do want to spend more time uh, slowing my pace and doing other things that I've kind of like put aside. But at least for the next couple of years, um, it's very exciting to be able to think about these issues without some of those constraints that come with, you know, like a job and responsibilities and accountabilities that are associated with teaching and doing research. So, yeah. <laughs> you don't, you're not going up for promotion and, you know, you're not looking at, you know, getting tenure, like you're, you're really just able to now because you've established yourself so well, just kind of pick and choose the things that bring you joy either in, in that space or out of that space. Like I imagine when I retire, all of my meetings will be with my feet in the sand at the beach, but I'll still have some Zoom Wi-Fi. I'll be on Zoom and have some Wi-Fi access <laughs> talking about leadership and like faculty members and, and them being leaders in the classroom. Yeah, I have to say that my Education is really my primary vocation, and I really enjoyed teaching a lot. And it was, you know, fantastic the experience of trying to teach these ideas in the classroom. And at the same time, for perhaps for that reason, and especially after COVID, I, I, it, it became like an exhausting proposition with all the new technology and all that stuff that that needed to come with it. Um, and so I see, kind of like in in the shift towards um, having more time outside of the classroom. Um, I see myself giving more, more, more in the role of advising people who are doing practice and are um, trying to grapple with some of the things and bringing in that voice to the advisement, or also advising uh, students who are grappling with issues, especially like PhD students, because education is my vocation. I'm very good at it, and so I know that there's a role there for for me to be able to do that work. Um, 
and perhaps I can do it uh, in in a in, you know in a different way. But that I think that's I see myself more as a, a, advising and looking at the big picture and offering um, feedback at that level. Yeah, so that, you know that tailors kind of nicely into our last question. But I have, I have a quick comment in that um, I, I think that's a beautiful space to live in because now that we're getting away from social restrictions around the pandemic and we're trying to figure out what does education look like, we we need all these voices in that space. So so what's worked traditionally in the past, but considering the changes we've had to society and to the changes we've had just to our, 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 our psyche, like our, our, our basic functioning space, like how now do we look at education through this new lens or do we look at leadership through this new lens and figure out what do we keep and, and, and what should change? I think there's definitely a space for that. But, but, to, but to the better question, I think, you talk about all this work that you, you're doing and you obviously have a passion about it. Um, our audience, a lot of them are leadership educators. So what are the things that you've integrated experiences from, from your scholarship into some of the, the courses that, that you've taught, like your qualitative research seminar or your cross-sector partnerships? Like kind of what are some of, how, how have you translated some of those pieces for teaching and advising? Um, so... I used to be a practitioner many, many years ago in Colombia before I came to study uh, and then ended up staying. Um, but my practitioner experience is minimal and in that context. And I kind of like felt reinvigorated um, by engaging in, in, in co-research with practitioners on the ground here, especially in the big project that lasted like six, seven years. So that it was, I, I kind of like revamped my practitioner side by seeing how uh, people were grappling with decisions on the ground and in the three the three courses that i did i have to be fortunate that i mean i paid my dues don't take me wrong when i was an assistant professor and an associate professor i taught the courses that were needed in the classroom in in the curriculum etc but at some point when i started to um have a little bit more of a sense of of, of myself and and my and what i wanted to do um I started to say I wanted to carve these courses. And so I invented these courses from scratch, which was like a really nice experience because I could incorporate very, very directly the research that I was doing um, into, into the examples that I was uh, that I was using in class. Um, I I had I was able to also at that point had learned a lot about the importance of experiential learning, especially for leadership. And so the, the courses always, always, always had um, participatory spaces where people were challenged with particular issues that were associated with the, the bigger issues that we were having in class. And I made sure that they didn't become just experiential because then that also creates a problem when you're in academia and, and and in fact some students would say oh, I didn't I didn't come here to be to hear what other students have to say I would really interrupt that way of thinking but that that was kind of like there sometimes but I wanted to make sure that the that the classes were grounded in experience but in conversation with theoretical frameworks and ideas that students perhaps had not been exposed to and that bringing them down and connecting them to the experience would resonate for them and would give them new ways of thinking about the stuff so that it would help them reframe their own experience if you want. 
which is one of the things that leadership does, right? <laughs> Good leadership does, collective leadership does. And, and so, so I think students always felt appreciative of the fact that they were learning frameworks and stuff that was kind of like considered rigorous in some way, while at the same time, they were able to discuss that in the smaller groups. They were able to make applications to the, the large group project that, that they would engage in. Um, and in the qualitative research uh, course, which is a course that in academia has been for many years like a luxury, if, if a curriculum puts it, if you put it in the curriculum, it's a luxury because obviously we have, we know that quantitative research dominates academia and um, quantitative researchers sometimes when they're not fully educated, when they're a little ignorant, would say that uh, that qualitative research is just, you know, it's just storytelling or just, uh, it's not evidence-based, right? Um, which is completely wrong, right? And so so I, I really put a lot of effort into making sure that research students who are going to be either advising policy people or being academics would give equal value to a qualitative study than to a quantitative study by making sure that they understood the different assumptions that were legit that made legitimate the that approach to research. And in fact, I, with other colleagues, of course, were able, we were able to convince the school that that course should be a required course for our doctoral students. And it became a required course for our doctoral students, which is like a great accomplishment in a school of public policy <laughs> specifically. But I think every doctoral program should have a required qualitative research course. I don't see too many. So anybody who could advocate and push for that should be doing it because otherwise we end up making decisions based on very partial understandings of the world. And I do think qualitative research brings like a, like a, a very important idea without diminishing the insights that come also from quantitative work. Um, but it was a delight to create a course that would show students, you know, most of them enter thinking, oh, okay, I'll do some, you know, like I'll do a few interviews and I now, and I'll know how to do qualitative research <laughs> and, and realize that uh, in terms of design, you know, assumptions of design, assumptions of data collection, assumptions of analysis, assumptions of interpretation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were working incredibly hard with something that was completely different from the training that had come before in the more quantitative courses. A delight to see people rethink, reframe their way of, of being, uh, of thinking about what research is and what legitimate research is. So, yeah. And in, with the uh, leadership and social transformation course, I basically said, okay, I'm going to do a course on social change and show what's the what's the role of leadership for social change using all the information I have from the research that we've done. Um, and over the time, it was also very very fun to refine the syllabus. You know, at first, you know, it, it shifted over time uh, in based on feedback from the students and what I thought worked and didn't work. And at the end, I had a I had a course that I think um, is very well rounded. And that's a course that I'm hoping at some point I can be invited to teach in other in other places because it's. Um, 
it's really it's a good course it's a very good very, very students students really find it very um helpful and the most interesting thing is that our stu my students would always come in with a desire to see whether this really this kind of like collective the idea of collective leadership really worked because it was really re it resonated with them a lot but their experience their practical experience would say it's impossible to do that and especially if you're not in you know already in a decision uh, in a position of making decisions then how can you come, how can you do that and so a lot of the conversations were about how do you open spaces in your own sphere of influence little by little and how that be becomes those becomes areas where as people see something done differently that has an impact in the work then can be replicated and people start um, respecting those spaces in, in a way that, uh, which represents kind of like a different way of thinking about how you change people's minds about a particular approach, right? And so it was great to, again, to see students, I could, I just could see my students learn so clearly, you know, like they started in a place and by the end they were in a completely different place and that was always incredibly gratifying. So whatever you can do to make sure that you know where they are at the start and where you want to take them and figure out, you know, how do, how do we do this? You know, following rule number one of collective leadership, which is, and, and of systems leadership, which is take people at work from where they are, right? Start where they are and then move with them towards a different place, as opposed to try to convince them of something from the start. It's like, where are they? And so what needs what needs to be there so that they can think differently about the things that from where they are at the moment. And that has that has been really helpful in terms of my of my teaching, um, I would say. And I think the same thing with the last course, the, the cross-sector partnerships course. Again, I started it. The funny thing is I started these courses at a time when they were not fashionable. Right now, <laughs> like cross-sector partnerships, there are courses all over the place. When I started it, nobody was doing it. I actually got a call from someone who was doing work in, from the intersector project and said to me, I'm calling you because I'm looking for courses about cross-sector partnerships for the work that I'm doing in this organization called intersector project. And yours is the only one that pops up, right? That was many years ago. Now there's lots of courses like this, but but kind of like to bring in new ideas from the very start and try to push them to over the years. Uh, if you if you can do that with your courses, that's also like a, a lot of fun. I don't know if that I'm not sure if I answered your question actually. But no, no, no. I'm laughing because um I'm sitting here taking notes. I I take notes voraciously. And I'm sitting here like, you're just giving us kind of all of the, this feedback and this history and these ideas. Like I, I was, I was, it made me think the biggest compliment a student can give me is, you know, I didn't think this course was really going to matter. Or like, I didn't think this course was important. And by, but then, and by the end, they're like, oh no, 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 no. I definitely see how this is going to help me. Or I, I talk to my students and, and I always say like, you know, you may not use this leadership stuff right now, but I promise you call me when you get to your office and your <laughs> boss says, xyz and don't you know it, and i don't know why this happened in august to september 
maybe eight former students dropped in my LinkedIn message in my LinkedIn inbox. I don't know why. And they were all like, you know, Lauren, I didn't really believe you. I was nice. I, you know, I smiled in your face. I did the assignment. I, I kind of believed you, but I didn't really believe you. But now some of those things are coming through. And my thing is like, that's fine. You don't have to believe it right now, but just don't get to work and say, nobody taught me and just say, just say, Professor Bullock said it was going to happen. And here it is. I don't want you to feel like, you know, so, so uh, to your point, like, you're so like that, that it's not convincing, but it's just really like opening their eyes to the, the value of, especially qualitative leadership, just opening their eyes to the value that exists in these spaces is so important. Yeah. And it was music to my ears to, to hear you talk about the value of qualitative research and our discipline. It's, it's interesting. I, um, and, and maybe, maybe my doctoral training was, was somewhat of an outlier, but I know parts of it were because I'm my terminal degrees in education. And so I, mm. I, I share that with, with you, uh, Sonia, around being an educator first and focusing on curriculum and instruction. But I had an opportunity to take two qualitative research courses from Valerie Janicek as a doctoral student. Mm. Um, and she kicked my butt um, in all the right <laughs> ways. And I, I teach, uh, I've taught both, but I, I teach one regularly. Um, our, we have two qualitative research methods courses in our, in our um, new PhD program. And it's funny that just serendipitously, um, my the meeting I had today for lunch, I was meeting with three of our faculty members because we were talking about are we all on the same page on exactly what the learning goals are in these qualitative research? Are we are we doing enough skill development? Are we missing anything? You know, is it consistent across the cohorts? And just really, really getting into the the, the nuts and bolts of these courses because we value it as a department. Um, I don't. I, I, it could have just been by happenstance. Um, it could have been something that came up during when we interviewed some of these folks. But but I also came into a department that valued it. You know, I had senior faculty yeah. that that you know they they were doing qualitative research projects um, and and in various ways. We also had folks doing quantitative as well. You know, and so mm -hmm. it, when we were designing the PhD program, we without question when we looked at the the methods courses, we said, well, they're going to take one qual and one quant, right? Yes, okay, consensus immediately. You know, and then have opportunities to take advanced methods courses depending on their dissertation topic and what have you. And so um, it's it's a I, I don't feel the tension as much in the leadership discipline as I do in other disciplines, but but maybe I I might have some blinders on because of my own my own experience. But you know when you're when you're studying people and behavior, like you can't just give them a survey, you know, like <laughs> so. Yeah, but look look, but look at how many how many indexes and right um, sure sure and and uh, indicate you know like quantitative indicators yeah, yeah. there are. And and they they become popular and they um, are used intensely and sometimes formulately. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that if you go if if you look into the like psychology departments that are doing leadership work, it's very very quantitative, unless it's a community psychology um, domain that understands the importance of participatory research in it. But in general, you, I think then you you've had a very privileged experience in terms of a, of, of a, a training that really um, gave equal um, footing to both to both places. I think when I started, it was like so clear when I started looking at leadership studies and uh, and, and even um, participating in, in leadership conversations, clearly there was like a dominance of quantitative 
stuff. And over the years, and also with the uh, emergence of uh, leadership as, a, as an alternative journal to Leadership Quarterly, um, then it has evened up a little bit more, right? Because before, qualitative people had very little outlets to put out there the research. And usually it had to be then in kind of like the subfields where they were working, I suppose, on the leadership, the journals that have leadership as a focus, because Leadership Quarterly has been very, um, very focused on, on quantitative stuff with exceptions. There have been some, there have been some editors that have opened up the space, but then it, it kind of like closes again. Um, and so, um, I mean, I shouldn't be saying something negative in the past, but, uh, and I don't know, but perhaps the leadership quarter at this moment is very open. I haven't, I haven't, um, tried to publish in it in the last couple of years. I published in it in several, uh, several times and I always thought that perhaps I, I was able to publish not only because my ideas were good and creative and convincing, but because uh, I had a lot of ends and and quantitative research is like, if you have lots of ends, then it's legitimate, right? And even though my research was qualitative and each of those ends was a universe in itself, because I had I was working with cohorts of 20 leaders and I worked with two cohorts of 20 leaders. Now I had an N of 40 and suddenly maybe I was palatable. <laughs> That's kind of, I'm not one of, I don't want to diminish the importance of the ideas that were there, but that was my experience. And I've seen the, I've seen the field open up more, become more pluralistic over time, you know, over the, let's say 25 years that I've been doing leadership work because the first 10 years, I wasn't focused on, on on leadership, and not in, not neither in my teaching nor in my research. For me, it was like a shift when I had the opportunity to work in these large projects. But I had to learn everything from scratch, and and in the process, ended up making a lot of innocent decisions that later came to haunt me. And I'm like, hmm. So I chose qualitative methods in a quantitative dominated uh, study. I'm working. I'm studying and working with marginalized populations, which are usually not considered le leadership material or leadership quality. And I myself are coming from a sociology background and a public service background into a leadership world that focuses on big corporations and organizations. It was like I was completely an outsider, an outsider, an outsider. <laughs> but I think actually that gave me the lenses that were that that allowed me to or gave me permission to be pushy and <laughs> innovative and and say okay here's here's where i am this is what i chose let me do this in the best possible way and it in fact gave me a lot of opportunity to be creative and to push the boundaries in ways that ended up being very good so there's something about seeing things from the outside in even if you're in that is very helpful um, for for academics, but also for students, I think, like ha helping them see things as an outsider, right, for a moment. Well, we 
so much appreciate you paving the way along with with others who you've collaborated along with uh, along the way and pushing for different lines of inquiry and different approaches and in the field and certainly there's so much uh, your contributions have been invaluable so uh, we want to respect and honor your time and again congratulations on your award and also on your retirement and thank you so much for uh, sharing some time with us today well thank you for a really interesting and fun conversation dan and lauren i really enjoyed this this conversation please let me know when it's out so i can hear it again <laughs> <laughs> from the outside <laughs> we'll, we'll also let you know when we find the fan club so just so you know. uh, <laughs> yes please <laughs> yes please because sometimes i still don't believe it <laughs> even though <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah great thank you thank you for inviting me to this it's been lots of fun Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org. 